Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. My guest this week is Rob Stenzinger. He's an interactive storyteller, user experience, and game designer. How's it going, Rob? It's going really good, Brett. It's exciting to be here. It is. It's good to have you. You you have quite a few projects, and um, we'll talk about the projects, but it's also a, a fascinating story of indie development and corporate jobs and autodidactic advocacy or self-advocacy autodidactic exploration this is going to be fun awesome um so let's talk first about what you do Hmm. right now what's your current kind of uh work situation well what i do is is a when i was planning my year i i wanted to come up with a name besides day job and night gigs right and so I think of it as my portfolio of professional commitments. <laughs> so my main one, it still ends up being main gig and side gig. But my main thing is um, I work, uh, my opinions are my own, but I work for uh, Target Corporate. And uh, I help out doing uh, evidence-based design, testing business hypotheses, and that kind of thing. Doing a little bit of UX, a little bit of prototyping, and uh, facilitation. They, uh, they headhunted me a while ago. Target did, and I came oh. up and interviewed and saw the uh, the campus in Minneapolis. Yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah, that's where I'm at. It's a uh, it's a really nice place. Had they, like a whole room for bike storage. Yeah, and showering if you bike to work. And wow, yeah, I was I was impressed. In the middle of Minneapolis, I didn't know that they owned like two blocks of Minneapolis. Yeah, it's pretty wild. A um, lot of lot of Target Target folks downtown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that sounds like a good day job. But yeah. then you also have, how'd you phrase it, night projects? Yeah. Uh, so I, I tend to do a variety of them. Um, things like uh, building games and uh, also doing podcasting. And uh, once in a while, doing some writing or uh, public speaking. What's your podcast? Uh, my main podcast is called Lean Into Art. And I do that with my co-host and partner, uh, Jersey Drozd. All right. I, I, I feel awkward not knowing that off the bat. So that's my omission. <laughs> I make no, a podcast, I mean, but I, I don't know anyone else's podcast. So that makes me a jerk. But there's, I don't think so. There's, a lot of, there's, there's more podcasts than you can swing an iPod at. I agree. I just started using Castro and am already a fan of... Uh, what was Marcus, uh, Marco's, um, downcast. Mm. No, not downcast over overcast. Overcast. Yeah. yeah. And I go through the libraries and those and just, just overwhelming. I end up just listening to NPR shows. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway. it's a safe haven among the wilds. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a almost guaranteed interest. Um, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I designed a T-shirt this morning that I will never make, but it had to do with Krista Tippett, and it was <laughs> <laughs> okay. It, it may have expressed a potentially. Uh, you could read it either way. We'll call it a negative sentiment. Hmm. But it was funny, and I it's it's, it had a conversation starter. Gonna, it sounds like yeah. I'll talk about it on overtired. <laughs> okay. <It's, laughs> yeah. Um. So anyway. I'll probably edit that part out because that's like slanderous. I didn't say anything though. Innocence. You really didn't. It was um, uh, very 
it suggests that you you don't like her. But what's funny is I don't listen to NPR podcasts. I actually spend my time only in the podcast wilds. And, you know, once in a while I go to the civilization of NPR for, uh, for a podcast <laughs> or two. So. Okay. So so you, you, you've made some video games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Guitar Fretter would be the first one. Yeah, that's the first one that I got out for public sale. Yeah. Okay. So, and just a quick description: uh, it's for learning fret positions on a guitar, mm-hmm. which kind of the name implies. Uh, what would you say the uh, the gist of the game is? I think it's a little bit of um, like a memory match game meets Space Invaders. And with the, the purpose of learning the, yeah, like you said, the, the note positions uh, uh, for the frets on a guitar's uh, fretboard. See, I find that um, I feel like I should play it because I learned to play piano and read music. But mm-hmm. then I translated what I knew about a keyboard onto a fretboard and stopped thinking about notes. So if you told me play, you know, a given a B flat in any octave, I would have to count from hmm. EADGB. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I feel uh, my friend who I play with totally knows all that. And just he just point he's like, right there. Just play it. Um, yeah. So that's actually valid information for sure. Well, it's funny. I, I had to make a video game to help me learn it. <laughs> and uh, and then I realized, oh, the dots on the fretboard are a really handy shortcut. <laughs> yeah, kind of like black keys on a keyboard. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you play, I assume. Yeah, I do play guitar and uh see it's one of my one of my big loves in making stuff and art, but uh I don't give it as much attention as I as I would like, but uh you know, making a game about it helped. Sure. Well, yeah. So this video game if uh, tell me if I get the timeline right here, but led to a an ebook. Yeah, well, it it did eventually. Um, so the ebook is the uh, game construction kit. Tell and us the whole title because it's ridiculous. <laughs> in okay. a good way, in an right. entertaining way. Video game construction kit, underwater tomato ninja edition. That's beautiful. Exactly. Now you just want to so fly out soul. to a website. And, yeah. Start <laughs> making games and, and check out the book. But uh, it's a lot of syllables. It's very verbose. It's definitely a me kind of title. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And uh, okay. So, and that book covers like intro stuff, how to start making a video game. How yeah. To, does it actually go through making a full video game? Mm-hmm. Well, in fact, I mean, you start out with a completed um, prototype video game that's essentially underwater tomato ninja and what that game is is that you're this uh little ninja character and you squish tomatoes and you're underwater um if you squish the tomatoes you get points if they touch you you um eventually don't survive i will give your titles this they are very descriptive of the content (laughs) okay cool (laughs) and uh well it's that somewhere to start I, they're not quite uh, upworthy titles yet, but you know, gotta iterate. And, well, I don't uh, know. You you could name it "Underwater Tomato Ninja Edition." You won't believe what happens underwater. <laughs> yeah, the mysteries of t- the tomatoes. I think so. parenthetical should be in every book title. Mm-hmm. You won't believe chapter seven. 
it seems to work for like uh buzzfeed and okay that yeah, may not may not be good advice hmm. okay so so you wrote this book yeah so and the gist of it is uh it's Video gaming and or game design is is like a it's a big landscape and a lot of different things that you could possibly get into and potentially be involved in making video games whether it's coding or des- the design the the visuals the animation or uh, sound and so essentially by starting with a completed game and then the book is like a choose your own adventure through the different things that you might be curious about trying changing or getting you know more experience in with making a game. And so, yeah, follow your own interests to, to this topic with uh, a game that already works. So you're not under pressure to, like, make something come into existence before you get to see, see the results of your work. So you've written games that are educational, and mm-hmm. then you wrote a book about making games. So I feel, I feel those two are very uh, interrelated. Would you say there's a personality trait that makes you a storyteller. Hmm. I think so. I think it's probably the desire to describe things <laughs> and hopefully see the, uh, like some kind of, um, realization happen through performing that description where someone's like, Oh, and then, then, uh, there you go. My day is made. <laughs> so is your, is your drive there to, share what you've learned or to kind of document for yourself what you've learned. And if someone else benefits, awesome. Hmm. I think it's ideally share what I've learned, but at least share the urge to try this thing that I found exciting. Yeah, I get that. It's like um, something, it's like somewhere along the line, I got uh, in incredibly uh, just well, I guess inspired to, to do this. And, and that's how all of my creative dis- disciplines have, have started. And if I can somehow share that with, with someone, it's, yeah, then I, I think I've accomplished a life goal. How did that start for you? Like, what was the first time that you shared something that you had learned? Hmm. Like, when, how did that happen? I think it was in the corporate environment, actually. Um, earlier in my career, I had the just the fortune of under, understanding things about the web and wanting to make money doing that and was able to, to get a job as a, a web architect after uh, doing some, you know, some game design things and whatnot that uh, between that and a little bit of web consulting got me into the corporate world. And pretty quickly, I, I ended up uh, helping troubleshoot and solve and then design a system that was basically a content management system with a bunch of bells and whistles for this particular business. And then the need to teach it happened, right? Like as soon as we, we had like this, this useful thing, we needed it to get used. And um, I realized in, in the teaching of it, I really, really enjoyed that process. Uh, and what what part of the process was um, validating for you? Oh man, uh, seeing other people being able to use the stuff that, yeah. that we created. I totally get that. Nice. So your current project or your most recent project? 
uh, would be this panda needs you. Yeah. Yep. There's a. So <laughs> it's a less well, descriptive title. It is. It's it's. Uh, it's also it's, a very uh, that invokes feelings and <laughs> nurturing okay. feelings. So. Okay. Good. Good. I, I was curious. I'm like, well, let's explore that. What? Uh, how are you feeling about this? <laughs> how does that make you feel? Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, it's uh it's it's a cute title. It it made me look up the webpage. Mm-hmm. Describe this. It's a game. Mm-hmm. Describe the uh the objective of this game. So in This Panda Needs You, there's this there's this little panda who encounters these different uh configurations of shapes. And it's a it's a physics game and it's shape pattern recognition and, and stacking. And so, well, these shapes are all in some kind of configuration stacked up like blocks can be stacked. And a cloud comes along and knocks them all down. And this is where the panda needs you part comes in. And you help the panda put them back to where they were. It's Okay, so it's a puzzle game, but mm-hmm. it has the added, I guess, pressure? <laughs> it's social pressure simulation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I feel like... So your history in game design, does this? do you have any formal education in designing games uh no i don't um very much a self-directed learner that uh early on in that that sort of um web architect uh role i mentioned um i ended up taking a week-long course on human factors and realized that that made so much sense why things would would be difficult i mean which may sound obvious now but uh you know it turns out how people um, are natural, um, what we're familiar with, the things we've learned, our learning styles, our abilities and, um, and or different abilities uh, really affect how we use stuff, turns out. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Kind of the foundation of UX training, I think. Yeah. And so ever since that, it's just it, it then I was um, I, I just would go through this weaving back and forth day job, night gig stuff where, you know, studying game design, studying user experience, studying game and, and, you know, eventually trying out these ideas, both in uh, projects that I would choose to make in my off time, but also sometimes pitching ideas for wherever I would be at to either help out when, when, you know, cause games over the course of my career have become, have popped up more and more during my, during my day job. So I've okay. been able to do design there too. So we've talked about the day job, night gig kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm assuming, and tell me if I'm wrong, but this Panda Needs You is not a Target product. No, it's not. <laughs> so was this a night gig or were you mm-hmm. uh, indie at the time? No, I was, uh, let's see. So this Panda, I think for a while I was at a... Um, a I started making this panda in 2012, but didn't finish it until 2014. And so I was actually at a, um, I was a lead UX at a, um, a local marketing uh, uh, interactive design agency. Yeah. And uh, that, uh, that, yeah. So it was a, it was a, a night gig through until I went from there to target. So did you have stints as an independent uh, developer in between? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, not that time, but like for a while, like from 20, 2006 through 20, 
2012-ish or so. Like, yeah, I did a lot of um, independent consulting and performing roles of like UX strategy and product management or just UX design for a variety of clients. So, okay. Sometimes game design as well. So at some point, what, 2006, I think you just said, mm-hmm. you you decided to go indie. Yeah. Was that a, uh, how how is that decision made? Well, uh, with a lot of trepidation and uh, <laughs> knowing that I needed to get over being afraid of my own sort of uh, uh, pedigree where uh, I needed to be able to just have new experiences focused on where I wanted to provide service and how I wanted to provide service. And so that's where I ended up parting ways with that. Um, it was an amazing job, but, but I had it for like nine years where I, you know, I, I designed and built a few different systems, taught a bunch of things and uh, it's where I met my wife and all sorts of great stuff. But, um, but I knew I really wanted to do other stuff and it was just getting up the gumption to finally go do it. And so I guess somehow my gumption threshold was crossed in 2006. Uh, and yeah. I decided to, to go for it. So you, you clearly, it went okay. You did it for six years. Yeah. Was it, um, was your trepidation validated or did you find it, um, better than you thought it might be? Let's see. I, I mean, it was some wild ups and downs. Like, so one of the first things I did when I left is that um, I, I brainstormed about different pains that I want that, you know, like, okay, so what happens when you build a new tool, Brett? Like, what, are you responding to things that are um, just your own urges or interests or how does that come about? It depends on whether I want to make money on it or not. <laughs> Things I give away for free are usually responses to purely my own interests or challenges that I just want to try. But if I'm going to publish something and ask for money, then it is very much a combination of it's rooted in something I want, but heavily influenced by things that other people need. <laughs> I uh and, and th- yeah, that it's funny it's like you're starting you know, like some kind of new product or or business endeavor every time you're you're doing that and I think th- I wish I had the way you described that in mind when I first went independent <laughs> because I went a little heavy no not a little I extremely heavy toward um an idea that I after a few months of of um uh, experimenting, exploring where I, I decided to build a tool to, um, essentially be an alternate alternative to Evite, but it was all through email. And, uh, so I ended up, uh, I spent a good chunk of time on that, like maybe six, seven months before I tabled it. So, so that was a pretty expensive self-funded thing. (laughs) And I realized that, well, this really isn't a viable thing. I need to uh, get, get back out there and, and consult and whatnot. And, and I was excited to do that too, because it's kind of fun to get um, the, the adventure of, of just 
going somewhere and learning about their pain points and like what what is a challenge in this environment and uh, how might we explore different ways to, to help, you know? Yeah. Um, okay. So we've, we've branched three different topics that I want to come back to. So I'm making okay. notes. Um, I have had several ideas in my life that I thought were gold. These, you know, these will change something in the world. <laughs> and I was wrong. Like I've, I've consistently been wrong. I'm okay with that. But um, it's also made me second guess a lot of things that I do. Mm. So we'll we'll come back to that topic because it's definitely the idea of marketing your own work and making ideas come to fruition, you know, uh, or should you make ideas come to fruition? Um, but let's talk more about the the indie corporate transition because you've gone the other way as well. Yeah. You clearly went from independent for, you know, half a decade back to corporate environment. Mm-hmm. What prompted that? Well, I think it was the, the, uh, how, how could I, if I don't know, efficiently pay the bills and do what sounds interesting and fun and, and deal with different different problems the instead of the problem of the 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 networking and the connections and stuff that i think are pretty critical if you're going to be a an independent uh provider of of consulting and services uh and i just i realized that i needed a break so were either of those considerations when you first went independent as well uh, they were, but I thought I had enough of um so over the course of the you know almost a decade that I was at that one job, I created a reputation of doing different things for um, design and user centric systems, thinking systemically and that kind of stuff that I thought that the folks who had scattered throughout the community over that course of time would be like a built in network that would be a pretty strong foothold and it it wasn't it was a nice foothold but you know not it you know after about 5 years 5 6 years that didn't uh it was it wasn't no longer uh, as strong as it was yeah i've overestimated things like that frequently um so kind of both ways are do you feel do you feel like what you're doing right now is where you're then like is staying in a corporate environment where you've decided to be now having experienced both. I don't think I'm a permanent citizen of either. And, uh, I think that it'll be a matter of timing and inspiration and also hopefully, um, it'll be a test to see if I've, what I've learned if I, you know, when, and if I do make that shift again, likely when uh, of, of am, am I a better judge of these different factors of, uh, of like where I want to serve and the audience and the kind of connections and uh, the, yeah, how I can, I, we'll see if I've tuned into that better. Are you okay with being transient in your career? I am because I guess recently I've, I've realized that, I mean, for the most part, it, a career is 
uh, often that word is often used as a way to describe. It can be a very helpful thing, but essentially, a progression of serving a, a given organization's interpretation of like your skill. And I guess I, I want that interpretation of my skills to be more in my hands. Sure. And uh, and I realize that if I can, if I a test of that, if I can pull it off, is to be able to, you know, fulfill commitments that people have hired me to do and to be able to weave that narrative together of like, well, for the next commitment, uh, if you're trying to evaluate if I'm the right person, here's how you can look at what I'm showing you. And yeah. like the, like coming up with a concept of, or, or not that I invented it, but interactive storyteller. Uh, I think it's a really good idea to come up with your own title. Um, <laughs> At my last corporate job, they offered me the opportunity to make my title. And I had no idea. I was, I was speechless. Oh, no. I ended up with something very generic. But I feel like I really should have taken more advantage of that opportunity. It would have helped me in the future to have something crazy good on my resume. But Ah, but these aren't, these aren't tight, tightly coupled. So internally, in, this, in the system, you're going to be labeled something. But then uh, it's a different thing when you're describing to the outside world. You don't have to then expose the internal systems titles, right? <laughs> I suppose not, no. Like I'm a you know, developer level 8.3, <laughs> you know. He's come up with some Dungeons and Dragons reference for... <laughs> I'm a level 58 front-end developer. This is intriguing. I know I want to look at your resume, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> I have found that being indie has made it a lot harder if I do go looking for jobs or if I apply for a job I I think any independent title I come up with does not serve me well. I was far more valuable to companies when I was working at a company. Eh. Yeah, there is that. That's a perception thing cuz if someone feels like, "Oh, we aqua hired Brett." you know right oh yeah they're they're gonna be water coolering that conversation well, it's kind of like how married men are attractive <laughs> that's interesting <laughs> it's true a wedding ring for certain potential partners a wedding ring is like a sign of great things that you want to steal hmm. i don't know if it works with both genders in a heterosexual environment but yeah Wedding ring is a great pickup tool. Not that I'm doing that. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> um, but anyway. Just, you know, data <laughs> floating out there. Right. Um, okay, so another topic that has already kind of come up is the idea of autodidactic exploration. So let's yeah. break that down. Autodidact means self-learning or yeah. self-taught. Yeah. And I like that word, and like most things, it can get um, misused, overspent, and distorted, and then kind of people can have their feelings about that can can change. But uh, but I like the 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 basic spirit of that, and my interpretation is more self directed because I learn a ton from other people, but like my motivation to be there and absorb and then try to. Um, apply and become 
more skilled at a thing, that's, that's me directing myself. Whereas uh, I'm not typically alone, actually. Can you learn what someone else wants you to know, but you don't necessarily have an immediate interest in? Ooh. Uh, but okay. So I, uh, let's, okay. A- am I not interested, but, but I need to learn it? You're in high school Uh-oh. and you have to take microeconomics, which Uh-oh. is actually college level. But that, so that's the, the, the case here. Um, you don't have any prior interest in it, but it's required to graduate. Can you learn it? Oh my, I, I'm trying to time travel now to, to, um, 16 year old Rob. (laughs) And right now he's telling me to go to, to go do something to myself. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe skip out and, and smoke a joint. (laughs) Yeah. No. Yeah. 16 year old Rob was pretty, uh, pretty grumpy dude but no um not not that bad but i do i don't think i could have made myself at that time without some kind of like you know what this kitten's life depends on you learning um macroeconomics is that what you said micro My, microeconomics yeah because that, that's the class i did the worst in oh that that's, sounds it was painful. just a top of the head example yeah yeah i it's if so i'm also saying like how i probably couldn't do that but like my out for that and my way to grab some kind of finger hold on that ledge is, well, it, can I think, can I imagine a way where I do need this? Yeah. And I couldn't, mm. I passed with a D only because of a bell curve. I just, <laughs> I, I, the first time I was described as autodidactic, it was a huge relief to me because I'd always been taught that you're either a visual, an audio or a tactile learner. And none of those ever seemed to work for me. Um, But then I realized that I can do any of those if I am self-directed to do it. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, and then I started reading like uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau and their, their ideas about education, which were basically you let the learner asks questions and you give them the tools to answer them themselves. Mm-hmm. And that was absolutely the way that I could work. Like uh, if someone, I, I, I do, I learn from other people. I'm not, it's not like I just automatically know things. It's not um, self-knowledge. It's a willingness to learn mm-hmm. yeah. and to absorb everything around you and maybe enough uh, talent combined with base information to pick things apart and figure out how to do them without going through formal training. Yeah. Well, the, that is a skill to be able to, um, to integrate something that that's new, that's coming in and try to apply it. And the thing is, it's not where, well, you, you absorb a thing and now off you go into the land of imagination and that, you can you could be awesome or terrible at it, but you're not accountable. But if you're trying to actually do something for someone with that information, you'll you'll get some in, indication of if you've picked it up or not. Sure, I feel like the major difference between you and I would be you're really good at then explaining these things to people who might not have the skill to teach themselves based on limited information. Hmm. 
that's really odd, really kind of you to say, but <laughs> I think your blog and uh, books you've published are, you know, evidence that you, you're pretty awesome at that. It is a serious strain for me to put myself into other people's heads. Uh, you, you'll note on my blog that a lot of my posts have limited background information because mm. I realized that I'm not going to get people from zero to using this script. Um, like mm. I don't have the, the patience to put people through the, the foundation that I kind of built for myself. Oh, it's, it's, a, ton, it's a ton of work. You've just added a whole product on top of the product. Yeah, you've got a whole like coding for dummies, Unix for dummies series. Not that I'm calling anyone dummies. I, that's a reference to the the book titles, not Yeah, that's still around. Right? Not a derogatory term for people who read my blog and don't understand a script. I bought many a for dummies book. So, yeah. I know what you're talking about. They're valid. Mm-hmm. Well, they're valid and uh, every time I've tried to help someone with something that I learned on my own, they have eventually said the words, ah, I'm such a dummy. So I get it. That's it's a, it's good marketing too. Mm, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, which brings us to talking about marketing, mm. man, that was, that would have been a really smooth transition if I had actually pulled it off. Um, I, I, one of the ideas that I had that I thought was going to be huge was the shuttle. And it was um, a holder, basically, for the Apple TV Silver, the aluminum remote. Mm, And it fixed every problem I ever had with that remote. And that remote was problematic. Uh, So skinny, it would just, like, disappear under pieces of paper on my, like, coffee table or slide between couch cushions. Like, it was designed to slide between couch cushions. So I solved the issue and I made the product and I put it into limited production and it just never really, it never really caught on. And in my head, it was, I was going to retire on this idea. And Oh, wow. It was, that's some faith. Of course, at the time that I was about to release it, that's when Apple announced they were going to have a new remote for the new Apple TV. So that kind of shot me in the foot, but there's still a lot of the silver remotes out and just don't think the idea was as good to everyone else as it was to me and i and i accept that entirely but yeah that's the thing is i'm an optimist and (laughs) i i look at something and say oh no this will solve everybody's problem you know in any anything that i create i'm like oh everyone needs this but i'm usually wrong every all of us are though (laughs) like Pretty much everybody's wrong most of the time. My wife is the pessimist, and I say that lovingly. Um, I absolutely feel I need pessimists in my life to counteract my eternal optimism. Um, I would say realist is probably a nicer word for it. Hmm. But uh, she doesn't really have that problem because her first assumption is that nobody's going to buy this. Hmm. Okay. And she overall has been right. Uh, I have proven her wrong a couple of times, but um, so the the key thing though seems to be promotion. Well, I think there's another element too. I think design and what what is informing your what kind of combination of your own gut and 
thoughts are you putting into something that you've also bolstered with some kind of evidence? What kind of evidence are you talking about? So uh, let's see things like, uh, one of the things I, I, I did at target for a while was, was really focused on, um, doing things that are very design sprintish where you, um, try to get that idea out. So someone comes along with like what you described, your, your remote product is, is a business hypothesis. And, then you can take that idea and try to find inexpensive ways to explore it. Like, you know, build small prototypes, do some, some, uh, you can do sign up kind of things where, Hey, this product's coming to existence. You could do, you know, Kickstarter type things, what have you, but to try to find some kind of signal for the, uh, the interest for the, the fit for the product for this time. And then you've got a little more, you know, a little more evidence to, to back up like, yeah, okay, let's go further with this. Um, you can do things like uh, testing it where it's like, maybe it's not that uh, the re remote was so losable. That's, that's the problem. Or maybe the, how it gets lost is part of the problem. And so you can, you can do um, some, some observational studies or, or journal studies like, um, recruit an audience and say like, well, all right, what are the highs and lows of your week when you're dealing with remotes and find out without your, you know, so you, you've got your gut feelings, but then you end up getting some kind of signal from what the, what people are doing and yeah, showing hey, it's product testing. Then you merge it. And, uh, you but know, the, I think in the case of a lot of more indie, both apps and products, um, that the resources to do that are limited. And as you'll see with any focus group, the focus group is rarely representative. Oh yeah, I would, I would, <laughs> I would say if I, what I said sounded like focus group, um, wow, I need to go back to, uh, um, podcast guest school because <laughs> it's not, no, no, not focus group. Cause that's, that's a group think thing typically. Yeah. Um, you want to, get data from individuals and, uh, and do it in a way that where you're as being as not leading as possible. I can do that with themselves. a website easily. Yeah. And I can just, you know, open up a limited beta and record user interactions with the site with a physical product. I would have no idea without the resources to bring in. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose I could send out a bunch of prototypes and have people fill out surveys regularly. Yeah. But I kind of did that. And again, it, it had the same results to me as a focus group. Everyone was in. Everyone was like, this is awesome. It changed my life. You have a lot of advocates. Yeah. Advocates. Uh, nobody didn't like it. Nobody complained about anything. That's hard. Fact, that makes it harder raved. to find. The... Oh, geez. <laughs> but... But yeah, like the, the public interest wasn't there, which made me realize that I really didn't put any solid effort into promotion. And yes, I do agree. You can get over some hurdles by just the promotion. Um, but one thing you could do is, is um, maybe put out the sign up kind of, kind of form and see if people are willing to part with at least information. They're not showing you, you know, money evidence yet, but. They're, they're showing you uh, some sort of um, interest. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and it's behavior you can observe. Yeah. That makes sense. 
would have been smart. When I make a new one for the new remote, I'll do that. What have you done in that area with your various projects that you sell? So I'm looking to do that and get better at that with my own projects. It's something that it's kind of like uh, being at the right place and right time again in my career um, where I was able to like live and breathe that sort of uh, design sprinty thing on a team. And, uh, and, and I learned a lot and now I want to apply it, but I haven't exactly decided where yet, you know, got a couple of projects in the works, but um, I need to, then, like you said, it's, it, it's a lot of effort, but what I want to do is make sure I push myself through that to see how could that help my indie project. So I, I don't have that yet. When was the last time you promoted something like Guitar Fretter? Oh, gosh. Yeah, this is one of the things where um, I, when I first released Guitar Fretter, I, it was somehow inexpensive to do Google AdWords. And... I've lucked out, right? So, and it's not like I I made a ton, but I I sold a nice little amount for Android because when someone searched for guitar and and they were on the Android platform, I was able to put this little ad in front of them through the the AdWords platform, and you know it had pretty darn good conversion. Um, but other than that, which is years ago, I really just promote through my podcasts and uh, the people who get to. Um, they connect with me online, they will be exposed to my projects. Sure. So, but you would have to connect with a lot of people to make something truly profitable in a long term. Yeah. Oh yeah. And hence what, what the, the biggest job that these projects serve right now is that they're, um, they're evidence on my resume of what I can do. That's fair. I found GitHub to be far more valuable than, uh, any other resume building site at least in my line of work. Evidence. That's what matters. I know. I suppose it's, it's a little bit the word of the day, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Google's hiring process involves live coding over a conference call, mm-hmm. which is, um, it's a very valid but intimidating ask. Oh, so you want this job. Let's see what you can do live in real time. Super intimidating. Target never did that to me. That's good to hear. <laughs> they did. They gave me a project, and I had two days to like build a Angular uh, mm. product page with mm. a shopping cart. I'm yeah, not, the, you're not supposed to talk about this stuff, are you? Well, I mean, I do have to keep. I mentioned like not like you I'm not personally, but targets, like someone. But, you're not supposed to talk about other people's hiring processes if you're a job applicant. You're a job applicant. I think that I don't know if that's really that taboo, like what you're sharing. You know, well, maybe, good. Need, yeah, good. Cause I'm not editing. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's, I mean, cause it's not like it's a, a scathing critique. I mean, the process is what it is. It is different and, companies. Yeah. Yeah. And each one has its valid points. So this episode is brought to you by PDF pen. Engage your PDF foo on all of your devices with the PDF pen family. PDF pen for Mac OS, PDF pen for iPad and iPhone and PDF pen scan plus. PDF Pen for Mac OS is the ultimate PDF editing tool, and you can have that same power on your mobile device with PDF Pen for iPad and iPhone. Break the scan, print, sign, fax cycle and do it all in paperless style. Add text and graphics, make corrections, and much more. PDF Pen Scan Plus adds scanning and OCR to your mobile toolkit. 
so you can OCR when away from your desk and scanner and scan receipts with ease. See smilesoftware.com slash systematic for details on the entire PDF pen family. All right. I think, yeah, we just covered like all the things I wanted to talk about, which means we can now move on to top three picks. Mm -hmm. So I have no foreknowledge of yours. Uh, nothing up my sleeve. I will let you go first with one pick and uh, surprise me. Mm. Oh, gosh. I've got a few picks. The one that, that I want to make sure I don't forget to share is a book by Kelly McGonigal called The Upside of Stress. And it's it's a, um, let's see. So she's a professor of, um, of psychology and I forget at what university, but, um, yeah, she produced this book it, that makes it very, the, the whole topic of, of mindset psychology, pretty approachable and, uh, shares a variety of, of, uh, well, evidence and, um, theories and back and forth and, and tech ideas, um, and then keeps backing it up with, with, with evidence and studies and examples that just give you a tour of, well, um, oftentimes stress is, is uh, it, we, we've created such emotional baggage around the word stress. It's difficult to um, make nuanced decisions about it, right? Like yeah. all, all stress equals bad. I don't know. What, or, or, is, or is that an out-of-date no, I totally, that would be my impression. Stress is obviously a negative term. And there's some, you know, there's a little bit of a rough chapter as far as some poor mice and where the, the some of the early ideas of why all stress was thought of as bad. But um, there are, um, it's really how, how do we process it? And uh, the, our frame of reference and how we're looking at that has a, a, um, a significant influence in, in what we do to ourselves physiologically with that experience. So is this ultimately a, a UX book? It's kind of a UX book. Like yeah. it's about product design? Not, well, not in that way. Or but applicable to product design. Is it applicable? Yeah. Um, it's, I think the the idea of mindset is really handy yeah. because uh, it's not like this book is advocating, you know, the switching, changing your mindset as far, you know, finding a way that frames stress in a way to you that's, that's meaningful. Like for example, uh, if you think, think of a stress in your life, got something in mind? I do. So is your life, would your life be more meaningful without that in it? Hmm. Or less meaningful. I'm going to go with less meaningful in this case, but I'm not going to elaborate. So, well, exactly. Well, <laughs> <laughs> okay. And you know what? That's and, and that shows that stress has like there's a um, um, there could be a good reason to find a different framing for that. So yeah. you realize that that there's meaning to that. Yeah. That that was actually a very interesting exercise. I didn't really never thought about before that. I kind of like having certain stresses. I mean, grant, granted, the, the idea of something being stressful is generally, I think, and correctly negative. 
mm-hmm. but the stress itself, the stressful part is how you react and process, yeah. not the stress itself. That's it's, intriguing. It's handy to separate those things. Yeah. Instead of gluing them all in one big ball of confusion. You have given me a whole new avenue for thought. Wow. <laughs> Thanks, Kelly McGonigal. Uh, right on. Happy to endorse that book. All right. So my first pick is the iOS app for coolers. Uh, C-O-O-L-O-R-S. Coolers. Cool. It's a color scheme generation app. Um, the the site itself lets you like create and share color palettes. And it's it's pretty cool on its own. But the iOS app lets you define like you can just generate random palettes and then you can pick a color you like out of the palette lock it and then regenerate the rest of them based on various mathematical color schemes and uh you can just keep locking in colors and then just keep modifying and just keep hitting the random like generate button until you come out with a palette that is what you originally intended which is intriguing to me that i can go from random palettes to exactly what I need. So, so, um, with, uh, random generation of colors, are you getting harmonious relationships there? Or yeah, it usually, de- it usually generates the, I think there's six colors in a palette and like, it'll based, it'll be based usually on like complementary triads. Um, and then, uh, sometimes it'll just randomly throw in like, a contrast or monochrome palette and yeah it it seems to use like some of the like six basic uh color relationship patterns Mm -hmm. um but in a random kind of roll the dice way I, i would suggest anyone interested in color palettes which i have a weird obsession with but anyone who enjoys just kind of putting together color palettes would enjoy this. And I found a long time ago that I have some kind of color blindness in the red spectrum. Oh. And like red, magenta, and even red tinted things like orange, I don't see the way other people do. And the color schemes I put together, if I'm manually picking colors, are not always as pleasing as I think they are. So I began to use math to compensate for that and just basic hue scale mathematics. And so these color generators are for me very handy because even if I see something different from someone else, I at least know that mathematically it's a pleasing combination. That's really awesome. It works for uh, me. Yeah. If I was going to go back to a career as a designer, I would consider it an, an impediment, but as someone who does design as a, small part of their overall work that concept works really well for me Hmm. yeah i find those tools really handy um good learning tools as far as playing around with relationships of of colors but uh yeah i love this one i'm gonna have to or i'm going to have to get that one i haven't checked it out if you like it and you want more i have a ton of uh (laughs) i have like a whole pin board tag for color generators so Sweet. I think I use uh, an app that you recommended a while back, um, Color Lovers Studio. Yeah, yeah. I still love Color Lovers. That's, yeah. That sounded redundant, but yes. <laughs> yes, with a U, Color Lovers. 
British style. Yeah. All right. So what's your second pick? Okay. My second pick is, um, let's see. You know, the Emergent Task Planner. Is this something you've heard about? Emergent? The Emergent Task Planner. Yeah. I, I'm not familiar with it, no. So it's a, it's a paper-based way to uh, examine sort of your, your estimated things you want. Oh, man. We're going to get done. Dave's, uh, yeah, he's been on my podcast. Yes. Oh, right. Okay. We did talk about this years ago. You had to have talked about it. Yeah. 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 Dave's, hey, uh, he's also been on uh, my podcast. (laughs) Great guy. It was was awesome. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Also a designer and a game developer and all that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, his tool is, is really interesting in, in that, um, I've recently, I've, I have experimented with my own day as an individual. I think that's what it's designed for, but, uh, been playing around recently with, um, planning the weekend with my family, right? So my wife and I all sit down and, and think about, um, so we end up kind of abusing the, the template quite a bit making parallel streams in there and stuff but like okay this is when we're getting up and this is when you know we think bedtime might be for the kids and all this stuff and what do we want to get done and uh and uh how did that go because uh you know the the weekends have been feeling pretty full and whatnot and that's typically when i'll pull out the emergent task planner is when a day feels pretty full but do i feel like i have been getting out of it what i was hoping to get out of it yeah i need more data the last guest on systematic was Aaron Dowd and he talked about his kind of uh, day planning in much the same way. And it's always been a concept I have uh, actively rebelled against, tried a couple times, <laughs> failed at <laughs> like, I've always been someone who's best at working at what feels right at a given time. And if the calendar tells me to do one thing, my brain says, no, <laughs> you're not my real dad. Um, so I, I end up not doing anything. Uh, but I, you, you are the second person in a week to espouse the value of planning a day out. And maybe I need to revisit that idea. Yeah. And it's, you know what? Everyone's got different learning styles and different, you know, things that that feel comfortable or what have you uh I've, i have to 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 be up front I, I have been a note writer for ever um i even remember as a teenager working in fast food i'd use any paper was available and scribble my plans on it and deal with it crumpled in my pocket yeah i used to do that but it never did me any good because oh they were all just notes crumpled in my pocket or piled and unsearchable and unusable to me I can't even read my own handwriting, so it was kind of pointless. That's why I started making note apps for my computer. <laughs> That's the you know natural progression to yeah do, doing something independent to solve your own uh, own issue. Yeah, That's awesome. this just came full circle. Mm-hmm. All right, so I'll give you my second pick because this idea of data uh, is actually really um, been useful to me lately. I've been using exist.io for kind of compiling all of my daily events and seeing them as data that I can then kind of figure out correlations between. Hmm. And part of that has been exercise. And at first I just hooked up the fitness app for my watch and iOS 
into exist, but then decided to go further and I started using Runkeeper. And so that's my second pick is Runkeeper as someone who is brand new to the entire concept of moving fast uh, physically. Uh, it's been a good kind of training device to get. And I, I'm jogging like further than I've ever jogged before. The, the longest periods of jogging since we had to run miles in gym class in grade school. Um, so I'm having fun with that, but I love that Runkeeper also gives me extensive data about what I've done each day, shows me a week's progress. I can kind of compare data points such as, you know, what trails were, was I on? What shoes was I wearing? Things like that. And then combine that into exist data. And I can see things like if I ran two miles that day, how many tweets did I send? And how does that reflect how many things I checked <laughs> off my to-do list? So you start to see these correlations between things like how much time I spend on social media, how much exercise I get, what the weather was like, and how productive I was. And things that you can actually then, once you have enough data, make changes to begin to take control of those things. The second half of that pick would be Spotify Run. Have you do, do you know about this? No, I do. Spotify not. has a feature that can detect your pace when you're running, and build a playlist that matches BPM to your current pace, and that oh, integrates so your foot with Runkeeper. Yeah, correlate to the. To the rhythm of the music. Yeah, and it's like, okay, you're going 155 beats per minute. Here's a song that exactly matches. And you can even like have it pick from uh, limited playlists so that you don't have to listen to like Blink-182. <laughs> Sorry, that's a personal preference. But um, yeah, so yeah, running. <laughs> run Keeper and Spotify Run. So could you, I'm now, I'm, now I'm intrigued. So like, could you try to run faster to get a different song? Okay, so I tried that, and Spotify Run didn't work with me on that. It kind of picked my starting pace, and thus far, I've only used it a few times now, but it seems to kind of just assume that's where you're at and going to stay at, which is kind of ridiculous. Um, there have been apps for years now that will do that, though. Like, immediately, if your pace changes for more than 10 seconds, it will give you a new song with nice crossfades and everything. I, I'll try to remember some of the apps that I've used in the past for that, but this is the first time it's actually mattered to me. I always thought it was a neat trick before, but now uh, when running, it's really way easier if you're focusing on a song instead of focusing on ground you've covered. Oh, yeah. That can oh, be yeah. a mental it's, block for me. That sounds like a fantastic game. Like I would want to try to get into running. That's just exactly what it is. It gamifies running. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So third pick. Mm, third pick. I will go with the, that's funny, I'm dodging, uh, Clip Studio Paint because I love it so much. Is that like Microsoft Paint? It's Yeah, it's totally like Microsoft Paint. You make big, blocky, um, neon green fish tanks. Wow, I was joking. No, it's not at all that. Uh, it's, it's a funny product because it's got, uh, it has two names depending on how you buy it, which is funny. Um, so you may know, may have heard of it as manga studio. Yeah. I think if you buy it on disc, it's manga studio. If you buy it as a download, it's clip studio paint. That's kind of hilarious. 
kind of weird, but yeah. Uh, it's a really good, amazing hybrid of essentially Photoshop and Illustrator. But it's all about having affordances and uh, like a flow to it that really helps you with, you know, making comics or storyboards. Nice. Yeah, I find these kind of apps fascinating. I play around with um, paper frequently on iOS, mm. like 53 Studio, 53 mm-hmm. Paper. Um, that and, and I find that a great, I find sketching really great. And I took a lot of figure drawing classes in art school, was once good at it. Now consider myself really bad at it, but I do enjoy the uh, the process, wireframing even with a pencil. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this is this is of interest to me. It's in- and it's it's a t- typically a very affordable app compared to what it's competing against, and uh, it's wild the amount. Uh, like for instance, you mentioned well figure drawing. Well. There are built-in 3D objects that you can plop into the scene and pose. There are ways to just rapidly throw a pre-existing background like, oh, this is a kitchen or this is a school, this is a street, whatever, and draw over it. So a lot of uh, like built-in uh, productivity. Think of it if like you were going to go you know, work, I don't know how many, how many hours a week a manga artist works in Japan, uh, but... <laughs> probably a lot and so you want to save some time here and there and they're trying to make the life better of someone who's cranking out a lot of artwork every day and uh um and even if you're not i find it beneficial one really awesome tool like to to not overlook if you get into it that is a like a magic trick is it has of um so every layer could be either bitmap or vector right and so if you pick a vector layer and you pick any kind of brush. You don't have to pick from a different set of brushes. You pick, and then all of a sudden it's drawing in vector. And lines overlap. And maybe you are you're drawing so fast where you've got these extra little hanger offer lines, right? You switch to the vector eraser and you, you set it so it erases the extra part. And you go boop, 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 boop. All of a sudden, perfectly clean drawing. Nice. So all the still shots the poster frames for all of the demonstration videos show someone drawing on what appears to be a macbook screen with a stylus what is this design how how what is your input method for this ah oh yeah and so i um i have used it with like a a cintiq and a mac but also um lately i use it on a surface pro 3 and so it's, um, it shines when you have like a pen-based input. Um, All right. And it can be a separate, it doesn't have to be a screen-based tablet, but um, that, I do find those a little easier. Oh, yeah. Especially for sketching. Vector, I can do with a mouse. Mm. But, yeah, drawing, I definitely need a pencil for. All right. Well, my last pick still relates to my data collection. And... I exist has last FM integration and last FM's API is growing more limited and I don't know the overall future of it, but I still like to scrabble, which is last FM's term for recording the music you listen to. I still like, thank you for explaining that. (laughs) I like to scrabble everything because I find my changing tastes in music. The longer I've used last FM, which is like 10 years now, um, 
longer I've used it, the more intriguing it has been to me to look at overall patterns in my listening habits. Um, but Apple Music kind of made that difficult for a while. Uh, there was no easy way to scrabble it. A lot of the apps that used to work with iTunes are now catching up. And uh, on iOS, though, pretty much if you want to scrabble your music, you have to listen to it in an app designed for that, which is horrible, um, even worse than using Apple Music. Um, but uh, I, got, I found an app after trying a bunch that claimed to do it. Uh, I found an app for my iPhone called... Scrabble, S-C-R-O-B-L. Mm. So minus a B and an E. It's just called Scrabble. And it just checks your recently played lists in Apple Music to see what's new since the last time you checked it. And it'll just Scrabble the things you've listened to since the last time it opened. There are some that are supposed to do it in the background. I couldn't get any of them to work. So this is my solution, Scrabble. And by scrabbling, you have essentially downloaded music you can play offline. No, not at all. No? You okay, basically, I totally didn't get it. You've told a database, Last yeah. FM, that you listen to this song at this time. And that's oh, all. And that's it, it. Yeah, and it starts to compile uh, data based on like what artist, what album, what song, uh, how frequently you've heard something over any given period of time, things like that. Oh, and then you can export, you, you can use the API to, like, if you go to my website, brettterpshire.com slash lastfm, mm -hmm. there's an older project I built there that uses the lastfm API and will show you, like, it's broken, I just checked it. <laughs> It'll show you my <laughs> top artists, my recent tracks. Oh, the only thing that's broken is the thumbnail images. It still kind of works, but... um. Okay. But yeah, it like uh, gives you, like I can easily, people could say, hey, who are your favorite artists? And I have uh, like, um, it's right there, uh, empirical data to support what I say. Ah, okay. It's a perhaps vain narcissistic thing, but I've always felt myself oh. defined by music. So it's listening I'm analytics. I don't know. I guess, I yeah. guess analytics are a really nerdy way of looking in a mirror. So maybe. I totally agree with that sentiment. <laughs> I don't know. It seems pretty cool, actually. All right. So let's talk about where people can find out more about you. You're on Twitter mm -hmm. as Rob Stenzinger, all one word. Mm -hmm. um, and just for clarity, that's S-T-E-N-Z-I-N-G-E-R. You can also be found at robstenzinger.com. Yeah. Uh, Lean Into Art, your podcast, where can that be found? It's at leanintoart.com. You do have you have um, specific URLs for almost all of your projects. It, if people go to robstenzinger.com, dot com, will they be able to find yeah, everything? Yeah, it, it's a pretty good signpost to awesome. yeah to branch off from. All right, and I am Brett Terpstra. You knew that. Everyone listening knows that by now. Um, I'm at brettterpstra.com, and I am TT Scoff everywhere else. So. That was a great discussion. Thanks, Rob. Oh, uh, thank you, Brad. It's really cool to be here. Yeah. You. And you live nearby. I should let you know when I'm up in Minneapolis. Oh, right on. Yeah, we could yeah, meet up for coffee or what have you. Um, yep. Video games, design thinking, whatever. Sounds like fun. <laughs> All right. Well, that was episode 168. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll be back in a week. 
Yeah.